0: Before I begin, let's ask the Lord's assistance one more time and pray. Our Holy Father, we want to thank you for the grace that you have given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we come. It is by his authority that we have boldness to approach you. We have learned from your word that he has taken upon himself our own sin and that he has dealt with this world based upon the fact that he has died for sinners. And he is dealing with sin in an authoritative way. He has given to us his own righteousness. And so, Father, we want to thank you that the death of our Savior has given us the right to stand before you. And so, Father, we become humbly, but we come boldly because he is so worthy. And so help us, Father, to, to cultivate a genuine attitude of of, of of gratitude, of thankfulness. May we understand the words, but even more, may we embrace the truth that causes us to be grateful for our salvation. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. Now, I have I requested all the hymns tonight to go along with this because uh, the idea of the Gospel in the Old Testament was called by the Apostle Paul a mystery. And, of course, when we see the word mystery in the New Testament, many times it has the idea that it is a known secret. It may be a secret to the world, but it is something that's supposed to be like a revealed secret. And the gospel, many times, in the, uh, that the way it's presented in the Old Testament, is very clear if you understand how the gospel is revealed in the Pauline epistles, or in the gospels, or in the way Peter says it in his epistles. Many times it's very clear, and the mystery seems to be understandable. But when we look at Isaiah, and we're going to be looking at Isaiah tonight, chapter 53, and we're looking at the whole chapter, verses, just 12 verses. I'm not going to spend a long time on all the verses. I just want to look at a concept that we find there. And when we see the mystery of the gospel, we see that there is a, a feeling about it. Now, when I was a young man, I would hear the gospel preached by a by a preacher I enjoyed listening to. And at the time, I believe it was in the 70s, it was very popular to say, we should not be swayed by emotion, but we should be convinced by the truth. And that's that's a good thing. But I think it was preached so often that then after a while, we we felt like it was wrong to get emotional about it. And it was really not a good idea to to work ourselves up and to say, oh, I really feel something about this. And I think we've lost a lot. Because the idea that the truth should make us emotional. Because emotions are not bad. Love is not bad. Pain and grief and the way the heart is designed is just what we are. We are emotional people. But I don't want to be led by emotion, but I do want to live a full human life. I want to be an emotional person based upon facts. And in Isaiah chapter 53, we see a lot of facts here. And when we read through these facts, if we allow ourselves to see what's being said, it's in a very emotional chapter, a very emotional chapter. It's something that, it's it's a grief almost. Mm -hmm. I would like to read these 12 verses to you, and then we'll get into what I would like you, to, like you to learn. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. I'm reading from the ESV. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put, up, put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, Dressers, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. There is a, an open mystery here that all of the, those who know the Lord Jesus Christ can identify with almost every one of these words. And yet the world may not have the same grasp that the Christian has. And so I want you to be able to look at this and enjoy it. And when I say enjoy it, sometimes you just need to wrap your arms around God and love Him for all that He's done for us. And I want to approach this chapter with the idea that there are questions in it and the rest of the chapter is designed to answer those questions. There are two questions in the the first verse. And like in all Hebrew poetry, and I'm not saying that this is poetry, but it's a very beautifully written piece of prose, it is written where the question is identical. He says the question, and then he repeats the question, but it's a slightly different uh, question, but it has the same gist to it. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom, as the arm of the Lord revealed? You see, that is the very same question, but it asked it in a very different way. And then we have a follow-up question in verse number 8. By the oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people? And so... I want to put these in words where it might be easier for us to understand. I would say that the first verse should sound a little bit like this. Who in this whole world has even believed the gospel? And who has experienced the power of God to have their understanding enlightened? That's the idea. And of course, the follow-up question should be read something like this. Who even cared if Christ was horribly killed for the sins of others? Who should consider? Who would even care that Christ was killed for the sins of others? And so I believe that if we approach this chapter looking at these questions, we'll have a better way of of answering these questions based upon how uh, Isaiah wanted us to understand. He wanted us to say, if you can answer these questions with these verses, then you'll have a better idea of just how much God loves you, of just what God has done for you. And so I want us as a congregation, as friends, as, as families here, to have an emotional value out of this. I want you to take home something that you can say, there is, I, I crossed an emotional threshold, and then I was able to say to myself, I am more grateful for my salvation tonight. I am really loving God a little bit more because the gospel has to do with the most important issues of our life, the most important issues. It's more important than uh, than what you're planning for dinner. It's more important than whether your career is going to take off. It's more important than, you know, getting along with your family. It's more important than whether the roof needs to be fixed or the air conditioning of this and this and that. All the things that pile up on us and we seem to busy ourselves and these things just rob us of what is really important. The idea that the gospel provides life when we have death instead. That's a big one. That's something that you can live your life if you only knew that God gave you life. Then all of a sudden, you can say, well, we should not sweat the small stuff. Only the big stuff. And like Jack would say, everything is small. (laughs) Everything is small stuff. But when it comes to your soul, if you're in Christ, then that is something that should give you a heart that is more emotionally attached to God. The Gospel provides virtue where there is wickedness. This is another big thing. If you've been saved from your sin, you've been translated from the dominion of darkness and death into the dominion of light and life. And so in that dominion, there is wickedness that you used to be under, but now you're in a kingdom of light and virtue. And, and we're many times we don't understand the idea of what the word dominion is all about. But just think of it as a jurisdiction of a government. Like we're in the dominion of the United States. And when we go on vacation, we're going to go to the UK, we have to recognize that we're in the dominion of the crown. Okay? Of their laws. And we cannot break their laws just because we're a U.S. citizen. And, you know, we just carry our laws with us. You know? No, we don't. But when we're under sin then we are really the enemies of God's law. And you cannot go against God's law and win. You see, the strength of sin is the law. And you cannot beat that. It also provides eternal joy where there was eternal sorrow before. These are very big, important things. And so, tonight we want to look at this chapter with the idea that as we learn, we want these questions answered. We want to make sure that when we learn something new, we would say to ourselves, how does this answer the question, who has believed what he has heard from us? Or in other words, who has believed the Gospel? Or to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's just a a very poetic way of saying, who has experienced the power of God to have their understanding enlightened? Only God can open the eyes of the blind. And that's a metaphor for saying who has had God open their understanding, given them spiritual sight, spiritual insight. So let's go through these verses and see if we can't answer these questions by what we have learned. Looking at verse number 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. See, that teaches us a little bit about who Christ is and who we are. When he was presented to us, the poet or, the, or Isaiah is trying to tell us, human beings without grace cannot recognize the beauty of God, especially when he's sent by the Father to die for sinners, because he's going to grow up in a way that no one would say, well, isn't that a lovely thing? Isn't that a beautiful soul? He seems as though he has the vibrance of a a healthy, young, growing plant in a desert. Because the human race is a desert when it comes to virtue, when it comes to what is right and wrong. And yet Christ was not like that. He was able to flourish in this dry ground. He was able to have a form of majesty that the world could not see. You see, that tells us a little bit about what we are like. We could not even see beauty when beauty was among us. We could not understand how good he was because we are not like that. There was no beauty that we should desire him. And why is that? Was he not beautiful? Well, he was just like a man. Sometimes people say, well, we don't know what the Lord looked like. I know what he looked like, he looked like a man. He may not have been a good-looking man. He may not have been a man that wore fancy clothes like Solomon or like Wall Street lawyers or anyone else. But he was a man that had character, and that is where his beauty comes in. We could say this verse like this. Christ was provided as a perfect sacrifice, but we could not grasp it. Christ was provided as a perfect sacrifice, but we could not see it. Verse number three. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces and was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now that tells us more about who we are than who Christ is. He was a man rejected by us, The one who should always have been accepted or approved of, or at least when we saw him, we would say, there's no better man than that. You cannot get better than this person who is, he's so upright, he's, all his words are like honey when it comes to the beauty of what he says. There's nothing more beautiful than justice, is there not? And when a man can really say what is right and what is wrong and have the words of God come out of him, and yet somehow that does not attract us. That does not make our ears perk up and say, what a beautiful soul this is. But he was despised and rejected by all men. He was a man that lived under grief. He was a man of sorrows. Why? He came unto his own, but his own received him not. He was one that all men hid their faces from him. He would smile, they would not smile back. He loved them, they would not love him back. He treated them good, they treated him with evil. He was not esteemed. Every man who is a slave to his own heart, a slave to sin, is told by the world, you need to have good self-esteem. The only reason you're not happy is that you don't love yourself enough. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only human being ever born that deserved the esteem of every man. He deserved esteem. But when we saw him, we did not esteem him. And so what can we say about this verse? I think we can sum it up with this. Sinners were blinded to his beauty and to his value. I think that's what we can say about this verse. Sinners were blinded to His beauty and to His value. Verse number 4, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. And so we see the idea here is that we thought that whatever He is enduring The suffering, the grief. Well, perhaps he deserved it. Perhaps he's smitten by God. But it wasn't. He's enduring this grief and this suffering because he bore our griefs and the sorrows that we should have borne. And so everything is turned around topsy turvy. The things, it's like like we were projecting upon our Christ what we should have been looking at for ourselves. We should have examined ourselves to see if there were sin instead of projecting them on a son of God. And so we can see in this verse, it clearly says this, Christ was our substitute. He was what we should have been, but we were not. And so in verse number five, we also read this, he was pierced for our transgressions. What a beautiful way for the poet to say this having the Son of God come and take upon our own flesh to be, uh, to be put upon a, a cross, a wooden cross, and having nails pierced through his body. He was crushed for our iniquities. Crushed. Who deserves to be crushed for iniquities? The one who does the iniquity. That's who. And yet Christ was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was our chastisement. And that is what brought us peace. He, bearing our chastisement, brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. What does that say about the amount of love that the Lord Jesus Christ had for us? Knowing that this was not something that the Lord said, there's nothing, I tried everything, I don't know what else to do, I guess I have to do this. Before He even formed us, He loved us this much. He designed to love us this much. His heart burned for us, before He even created us. Our Christ suffered what we should have suffered. That's the bottom line for this verse. He suffered what we should have suffered. Verse number six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How many times when we think of sheep, we think of cute animals. We think of kind animals. We say, oh, gentle animals. You know, you know everyone says, oh, you know, and you even have like little lambs that we, you know, we, you know little, little animals that we stuff and give to our children, and then they hug and go to bed with them, and they say, oh, I love this cute little, nice little lamb. But this is not the type of sheep that we are in this particular verse. What this verse is implying here is that we are as dumb as sheep. We are, un, we are just unaware of what our surroundings are. We couldn't even find our own food left to ourselves. We would just wander off, fall off a cliff and die. That's the way we are. We are like sheep that have gone astray. And it's not as though we're just dumb and just stubborn or just oblivious. We're drawn away by the lust of our flesh. We seem to be drawn by something that is not good. You know, we're actually drawn by the evil that says, now that looks good. And they go right after it. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon Christ, this young tender plant, this, this one beautiful person, on him. All of the stupidity that we are, all of the wickedness that we are, all the things that we are tempted uh, to be drawn away away from God, it's, it's really played, you know, laid right upon our Lord. And we, and, and I think that this verse can be summed up like this. We, as blind sinners, are oblivious to God's grace, many times. We need to remind ourselves often of the grace of God that abounds toward us. And we need to stop being so oblivious to it. We need to be sensitive to it. We need to allow ourselves to appreciate it to love it, to think about it. And when I read the scriptures and it tells us that we should meditate in the law of the Lord day and night, I don't think that the Lord wants us to become lawyers so that we can debate about it and then uh, be clever with each other. I think the idea is that we need to see the beauty of what is good, the beauty of what is right, and then love that. Love what is good. We need to be experts in what is good because it should be like, uh, it's like a cook in a kitchen. Mm, this needs this. This needs that. You know, it's not something, about, oh, you put it in your mouth and spit it out and say, oh, that was the worst thing I've ever had in my mouth. You know, that is what evil should do to you. You should have that reaction to what is evil and what is wrong. But you see, we are drawn away by the disgusting, by the distasteful. But... Christ is the one that we should be very affectionate toward. Verse number seven. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb, and here we have the comparison. He was like a lamb, not like a sheep that went away. But he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Now, I'm not a farmer. I'm not a sheep herder. You know, I'm not a sod buster or anything like that. But I have a suspicion that whenever a sheep is being ready to be slaughtered, the first thing you'd want to do is shear the sheep. For one thing, you get to keep the wool. For another thing, it probably makes the slaughter a lot easier. Uh, Okay, just, I know I don't want to get into that. But the idea of that, you, you, you slaughter the sheep, you want to drain the blood out of it. There's a whole lot of stuff and 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 if it wasn't full of wool then it would just be a mess and so if you're a a real sheep herder you want to have the wool suit and then you want to have the mutton and so when it comes to the lord jesus christ this image that's supposed to come into our mind that he is like a lamb led to the slaughter the first thing it's done is that it's covering its beauty is stripped away from him and where does the beauty that's stripped away from him, goes. He's actually providing it to us. He's providing his own beauty to us. And then the blood that's shed, the life, is for us. The bread of heaven, the meat that God provides to us, the spiritual health that we have. He dies for our sins and then provides from him. And what does he do? Does he complain? No. No. He doesn't even speak a word. He stood before Pilate without any defense. And the only time he spoke a word was not to defend himself. But he wanted Pilate to know that he was the king. And he had no excuse. Pilate had no excuse. I don't care how many times he washed his hands of it. There's no excuse. And executing the innocent for his convenience. So we're down to verse number eight. And this comes again to this question, this follow-up question. And if we remember our questions that we're trying to answer here, who has believed our report? And who has who has experienced the power of God to have their understanding enlightened? And now we come to this verse where he says, by the oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation, and what this means is that the people that were there with him, those who were his contemporaries, Did they look upon Christ and look at this man, and did they consider that he was cut off out of the land? Did they consider that he was actually killed and murdered? For who? For the transgression of the people? No, they did not consider that. They said, look at him up on the cross. He crossed for Elijah. You know, he saved, he said he could save others, but let him save himself. They mocked him. They did not consider that he was actually dying for the sins of the people just like ananias the high priest prophesied not that he actually said those words in a good way he says i think this guy should die so the nation can be saved from the romans and it's you know it, it it's ironic that he should be given that type of prophecy but he did not recognize that he was going to die for the sins of others but he wanted him to die to preserve the nation from the wrath of Rome, not the wrath of God. So this question, the follow-up question. Who even cared if Christ was horribly killed by the sins of others? Now I want you to answer that question. And of course, I'm asking, did you care? Was the arm of the Lord revealed to you? Who has believed the report? Who has believed the Gospel? And so, if you have believed the good news of our Christ, if you have believed and know that the arm of God or the power of God has delivered Christ for your sins, then let it affect your heart. Let it touch your feelings. Let it touch what you think and how you feel. Let it grow into a heart of gratitude. Let's go to verse number 9. And they, the wicked, that is, you know, they, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and that there was no deceit in his mouth. Now, I'm assuming that this, this means that uh, when Isaiah was writing this, he was saying, there'll come a time in the life of the Messiah, the suffering Savior, that he'll be made uh, his grave with the wicked. In other words, we can see it in the New Testament that he was actually crucified between two thieves. And wasn't it a blessing of God that one of them repented? But he was a thief nonetheless. It doesn't mean that he wasn't a thief just because he repented. It doesn't mean that we are good people just because we repent. We are good based upon the fact that we have been given righteousness and that we follow the Lord. And his rich man, and he was with the rich man in his death. Now, rich men begged the body of Christ Put them, put Christ in his own tomb, but it doesn't mean that he was associated with rich men. Oh, this man with all the other rich people. No, that's not the type of association he had. He was associated with them, and it was as though he had no place to bury himself. He was like a fox who had no hole, he was a bird that had no nest. He was a man that died and was murdered. He didn't even have his own grave. He had to be given a place to be buried. And so he was given a place among the rich that he may die. But he was given a place among the wicked to be executed. And so, even though he had done no violence and no deceit was found in his mouth, no guile. I wish that we could say that about us, that no deceit is ever found in our mouth. And so what does this mean? The wicked who killed Christ had no good reason to do it. However, did it not do good for us? Verse number 10. And yet it was the will of the Lord to punish him on our behalf. This, is, this has always been an amazing thing to me. That God said it is my will to crush him. And to put him to grief. And uh, just the very idea, why would God do that? Why would God say, there's only one who is good, and that is God. And he became flesh. And then it was God the Father's will to crush him and put him to grief. And there's only one reason. And that is the remainder of the verse, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Do you see? It was God's will to make the very soul of the Lord Jesus Christ an offering to, for guilt. That, he should, that God the Father should crush him. Why? For he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. Now the idea here is that God has an inheritance. Just like the children of Israel when they went into the promised land. Every tribe had their inheritance. With the exception of the priests. They were given cities to live in, but that was their inheritance. But the inheritance of God, what does He inherit? He inherits His people, His offspring, the offspring of the Lord Jesus Christ. His children belong to God, and Christ shall see His offspring. And the next verse plays into this. The next verse, let me take that verse with it, and then we'll we'll kind of condense it down. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. Now, this has confused many people, but I'll say it this way. It says in the King James, the travail of his soul. And the idea here is that the anguish that Christ is experiencing here is the same type of anguish and willing to suffer the way a mother is willing to suffer for the birth of her own children. And Christ is willing to suffer that for his for his offspring, and he's going to see it and be satisfied. He's going to be satisfied that all the suffering that he is willing to do for his children, for his brethren, for God's people, and then that satisfaction is not just, oh, I can put up with it. No, he's actually satisfied. He is actually happy to die for us. How can you even express yourself in the presence of God without some gratitude, Mm -hmm. that you would have a Savior who is happy to die for you, Mm -hmm. who has committed Himself in an infinite way, in an everlasting way. It's not as though in in life you're married to one person and you said, till death do us part. The Lord has said, I'll never depart from you, Mm -hmm. forever. There is no death that can part us. He has committed Himself forever. He shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous, he shall make the righteous one my servant. And and, and they shall make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Now what we can bury, what we can boil this down to is this. These last two verses, verses 10 and 11. It is God's will to punish Christ for your sin, for our good. That's his will and our saving, our, our salvation was accomplished by our Lord's suffering. He was willing and wanted and loved suffering for you. Now, no one loves suffering, but for Christ, His love for you was so great, He embraced His own suffering and loved you that much. Therefore, I will divide Him a portion with the many, And I shall divide the spoil with the strong. And I believe that this phrase means this, that there are going to be many people who are going to be saved by the grace of God. The portion that's here that is promised is the inheritance given to Christ, that Christ is going to die and save and deliver them to God the Father. The portion is us. I will divide him a portion among the many of the elect. The Lord's portion are His people, and there are many of them. And I shall divide the spoil with with the strong. And so, what Christ did is that He led captivity captive, and He spoiled principalities of darkness. He defeated them. Because, you see, when God comes and wars against sin, it is done by the sword of His mouth and by the power of His Spirit. And he slays the sinner. We are the sinner. We are the sinful. But we are also not only in darkness, but we are darkness. We represent principalities of darkness when we embrace and follow the ways of the world and sin and Satan. And so when Christ, it's said here that he shall divide, divide the spoil with the strong, that means that he's going to win the battle to save our souls. He will conquer our hearts through his word and by his spirit. Why? Because he was willing that he was poured out his soul to death. That's how he does it and that's why he did it. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. This is how he accomplished it. And so... Um, I've been told by those who love me, that when I get done saying what I'm done saying, I should stop talking. And so I'm almost done. Okay? And so, let me just boil this down a little bit more. I'm going to take all the phrases and all the verses we've had, and I'm going to take what I've condensed it down to, and let me just read them to you one after another. Christ was provided as a perfect sacrifice to those who needed it most. Sinners were blinded to His beauty and His value by their own criminal negligence. Christ was our substitute, and He suffered what we should have suffered. During all of this, we were oblivious to God's grace. The wicked who killed Christ did so for no good reason. It's it's God's will to punish Christ for our sin, for our good. And our salvation was accomplished by the Lord's suffering. And Christ receives a saved people because he paid the cost for their sin Mm. now I have one application here and it won't take long to get it I have um, an illustration I guess I guess it's an illustration I happen to like maple syrup I happen to like maple stuff Uh, my daughter Caitlin whenever she needs to buy a Father's Day gift I get a batch of maple cookies I have Children that bring me bottles of maple syrup, and um, it's one thing about maple syrup is that I've learned to appreciate it. And if you know, it's like if I pour it onto a plate on with pancakes on it. If I see some maple syrup left on my plate, I just can't put that in the sink. It's like this stuff is too valuable to just throw away. Did you know that it takes 24 the life. The life's work of 24 bees to make one teaspoon of honey. The life's work of 24 bees make one teaspoon of honey. That's a lot of bees. When it comes to making maple syrup, you have to have 35 gallons of sap to make one gallon of maple syrup. Now, if you're one of those people that just pours it on your pancakes and you take a bite and then you dump it away, just buy artificial Okay, just buy the artificial is is high fructose syrup. It's not good for you But you deserve that (laughs) Because when it comes to making maple syrup if you had to tap the trees gather the sap filter out the sap Keep the wood going and boil 35 gallons. You know how many how much 35 gallons is? That's the same amount of water you would put into a bathtub to take a bath You shouldn't take a bath in maple syrup, but you, if you boiled all that down, you get one gallon of maple syrup. Now, why have I told you all this? Mm. It's because the next time you take a bite of pancake with real maple syrup, you may say, "I, I can appreciate this a little bit more." Mm. Now, what I want you to do is to take the doctrine that we seem to know so easily, mm. and it's been boiled down so easily for us. Mm. Jesus Christ died to save you, and your faith and repentance grants you entrance into heaven and to be with Him forever. That has been boiled down from a lot of truth. That has been boiled down from all the chapters of Isaiah, from all of the Pentateuch, from all of the prophets. All the things in Scripture has been boiled down and boiled down and boiled down, and it comes that Jesus loves you. And yet we hear it, and we just take a bite and throw it in the sink. It's just gone. It's so easy to throw away. Mm-hmm. We need to learn to appreciate it. We need to learn to love it more. Mm-hmm. We need to let it touch our hearts. Mm-hmm. We need to be in love with God. Mm-hmm. We need to appreciate it much, much more than we do. So I'm just saying, boil, do some boiling. Mm-hmm. Go back and see all the scriptures that led us to the knowledge that Jesus loves us Mm -hmm. and died for us. Mm -hmm. Don't just be doctrinally smart, but cross that emotional threshold Mm -hmm. of allowing yourself to be in love with God. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. And we commit ourselves to you as best we can because we know that you love us. We pray this in our Lord's name. Mm -hmm. Amen. Mm